So this evening, reflecting on uh, quality of metta and some of the um, experiences that I've had around it and some of the remarkable beings who are um, impressive manifestations of it. So when I first was uh, introduced to the teachings of the Dhamma, I was at University 17 in a class. And uh, as a part of that class, there were many different meditation masters that were talked about. And one of the people that really um, caught my interest and my attention a lot was a woman by the name of Deepama. So Jack Engler, Jack Cornfield was um, Jack Engler was the was the teacher of the class, and he was talking about Jack Cornfield and Ajahn Sumedho and Ajahn Shah and some of the forest meditation masters. And he also mentioned Deepama. So Deepama was a, a woman who was born in um, Bangladesh and came to India around the time of the partition of India in '57, I guess it was something like that, and. Um, her story was just extraordinary. So, you know, in India at that time, and I think it still is the case, you know, women were married at a very young age. They were just children. So she was 12 and she was uh, betrothed uh, to her husband, who was 25 years old. And uh, and then what would happen in an Indian household would be that the, the bride would go live with her husband's family. So, you know, a 12-year-old Indian girl is all of a sudden in exile from her own family. And her husband was an engineer and, and uh, working in Burma. So, you know, she went from her homeland and her own mother tongue to a foreign country with a new family. And the, some of the characteristics of the story were just... Mm, phenomenal for me in terms of the kind of suffering that she experienced as well as the depth of her interest to wake up. So, you know, in a period of about 10 years, she lost two children. She lost her health. She lost her mother. She lost her husband. And she was completely beside herself with grief. And And yet she came from a a family where her own mother had been um, a very devout practitioner and a very devout Buddhist. And so as a a young girl, she would go to the monasteries and bring food for the monks and put the food in the alms bowls, which was unusual for the children. And in that circumstance, they they didn't let that happen very often. So she grew up with some sense of an affinity towards um, wholesome things which inclined her mind towards goodness. And her life, she was interested in meditating, but her husband kept on saying, this is not the time, you know, wait, wait, just wait, just wait. And so then what happened was, is that circumstances kind of arose in a particular way, and the, the intensity of the suffering she was experiencing, the magnitude, was... Um, 
completely dismantling to her. Everything kind of fell apart. Her health fell apart. Her happiness fell apart. You know, there was just, there was not a whole lot left. So she finally did go to the monastery, but by the time she went to the monastery, her her focus was so single-pointed. It's like she completely got it that there was nothing in this world that was going to be able to do it for her. That the only way for her to find peace was here. That that was the only place and the only way that she could actually find peace. And because of her virtue, because of many different factors, her ability to go incredibly deep very, very, very quickly resulted in a remarkable transformation in a very short period of time. It's unusual that people experience that, that level of intense suffering and that level of transformation that quickly. For many of us, it's a very long and very slow process. But for her, it it shifted very quickly. And so she went from being somebody who was sick and, and, and miserable, depressed, dependent, to being somebody who was luminous and radiant and uh, full of joy and happiness. And so, you know, hearing the story about her and some of the things that happened with her and around her and all the rest of that, I was interested in meeting her. And, you know, Jack Engler was telling stories because he, he went to India and did some research and she was one of the people that he interviewed to find, you know, qualities of, uh, of advanced meditation practitioners and some of the kind of mind states they had so that he knew her very well. He'd spent months with her. And as a result of having been there, he'd heard and he'd witnessed things that were very extraordinary. So one of the things that can happen when one meditates um, in a particular kind of way is that one can develop certain kinds of psychic power. And Menindraji, who was her teacher, decided that, you know, he wanted to see if the instructions would yield those results. And because he himself um, wasn't going to use himself as a guinea pig, he was going to find some of his senior students to try it out on. And because what can happen with psychic powers is, is that people get really seduced by the power that he really wanted to make sure that the people that he picked were people who were steady in their practice. So he picked Deepama because he knew her to be pretty unshakable in her practice. And so he, he showed her and he taught her how to do these different things and she developed most of the psychic powers. So she could walk through walls and she could be in two places at once and she could um, go back in time and she could... Um, she could, uh, she could manifest into different elements, so you could see her in the sky, and she could disappear into the earth. and So all the things that people go, wow, and that, wonderful. <laughs> and, you know, and she would do things, she would do things in a very playful way, you know. So, you know, she'd have an interview with Menindrady, and she'd just show up through the wall. <laughs> You know, so there are kind of sweet stories about her. 
So, you know, I'd heard about Tito Juan. I had this feeling of, wow, this sounds like an amazing person. I'd like to meet her. And, you know, what would it be like? What would it be like to meet somebody like that? So, many years later, when I finally did make a pilgrimage to go to Asia, and, you know, meeting Deepama was was very much part of my pilgrimage. That's what I, what is one of the things that I wanted to do. And I came to the Mahabodhi Society in Calcutta, which was a place where there were monks there. And I walked into the room, and the room wasn't a whole lot bigger than this room. It was a different shape. It was more square than it was rectangular. And there was a platform, and there were a number of monks there. And I came in the room through the door, and there was this tiny little person sitting there. But there was this atmosphere that just about knocked me over from her. You know, so it was like, you know, I had to brace myself from the effect. I also just saw her back. You know, I didn't even see her face. And that was deep in love. And so the thing that really impressed me the most about her was this unimaginable quality of loving kindness. So, you know, for me, it, it, it was um, sobering and staggering to realize that this most striking manifestation of her power was her kindness and her ability to love. And what it felt like being in her presence, it felt like being in this incredible vast ocean, vast, infinite ocean, that both saw you completely and embraced you totally. There was nothing that was left out. There was no judgment. And it was I'd never experienced anything like it before. And so, you know, having contact with that, it gave me some kind of reference point of what is the magnitude of what love can actually be developed to. What does that look like? And also it gave some perspective of what happens when the practice comes to fruition. That is the result. And in one of the conversations with Deepama, Jack reported, you know, her saying that, you know, for her, mindfulness and metta were the same. They were absolutely non-differentiated. And for me, that was really helpful to hear that. Because sometimes we think of mindfulness as one thing and metta is another thing. And the real practice, the real practice, if you really, really, really want to do the practice, you've got to do mindfulness practice. But what Deepama was saying is, is that they're the same thing. And over the years I have come to understand how they are the same thing. You know, one has the coolness of being able to see things clearly and know things as they are. And the other has the warmth of being able to embrace things as they are. And both of them are two sides of the same thing. Two sides of the same thing. So meeting somebody who has that quality of kindness, that quality of love, it's like, you know, you're in a different league, you know. It's like, wow. And then to realize, well, that is in fact what happens when the practice ripens really helps put things in perspective. And it was very impactful for me. In fact, after meeting Deepama, I wrote a letter home to my family and I said to them, if my life ended at that point, 
I would felt that it would have been enough just to meet her and to know that. To know the potential of awakening manifested in that level of love. So Deepama has been a guiding influence in my life and has come back to me in different ways and different forms over the decades now. And to me, it keeps returning me back to that, that the, the power of the insight that we have manifests in the fruition of that capacity to be present and embrace and welcome with that incredible sense of love. Jack Cornfield was talking about, you know, as a monk in the Thai forest tradition, they have a very hierarchical way of relating to each other and so it's customary and it's respectful when you come to a monastery that the first thing you do is you bow. You bow to the Buddha and then you bow to the senior monk and then you bow to anybody else who's senior. And so Jack was visiting Deepama and I think he was a monk. No, he'd been a monk. And so he was trying to figure out what he should do, whether he should come and he should bow to her or you know what the deal was. And she, she caught his hesitation and his awkwardness and just grabbed him and gave him a big, big hug, you know. So, you know, Deepama was not um, caught on pretense or on custom or on ritual. She was on the kind of the physical manifestation of kindness, you know. You grab them, you hug them, you know, you hold them. And it's like, you know, it's a mother's way of doing it. It's not a monk's way of doing it. (laughs) And Amma also is the saint. You know, Amma is an Indian saint, and she's the hugging mother. And for uh, a spiritual woman in India, to touch men is absolutely taboo. It's absolutely taboo. And yet at some point she became clear that one of the ways that she was going to speak to people was by giving darshan, and her darshan was to hug. So, I don't know how many years ago, four years ago, she'd hugged 25 million people. You know, and she doesn't say, I'll hug only clean ones, or I'll hug only the female ones, or I'll hug only the Indian ones. It's like everybody is welcome. Everybody is welcome. And that level of, you know, embracing everybody is also a kind of an expression of a manifestation of kindness that's rare. And yet it, it gives us a window into what can happen when we begin to start working with these forces and working through those resistant places and beginning to let that stuff saturate through our system and be the place that we come from. Somehow from the time I was very young, so from that first contact with the Dhamma, I really had conviction that awakening was the most important thing for me in my life. And because of the contact and exposure of the teachings that I had, 
I had a strong sense that what was really important was to, to become free from suffering. That was the key. That was the path. And that was a, took up a lot of interest and a lot of energy. And I remember after many, 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 many years of seeing, you know, I've been trying to become free of suffering and that there's something in the way that I am configuring this that I'm up against a wall. I need to try a different approach. And it was at that point where I decided to take the Bodhisattva vows, and it was at that point where I began to get a sense of what um, Kuan Yin energy, compassion energy is about. It was at that point that I went to Australia, and I spent two years living in the bush. And for me, I've always been somebody who feels very much at home in nature. But I'd never been immersed in it like that. You know, I was born in L.A., you know, so I'm a city kid. And, you know, I'd escape to the mountains. You know, I'd go for backpacking trips. But basically, I've always lived in the city. So this was the first time where I was immersed in the wilderness for an extended period of time. And, you know, when I first got there, I was really scared. Um, I'd never been to Australia before, and everything is kind of weird, you know. The, the stars are weird, and the toilet flushes backwards, and the seasons are weird, and the animals are weird, and everything is weird. You know, it's just all weird. And so, you know, I got to this place, and I thought, and I didn't know anybody before I got there, and I thought, well, you know, I, you know, in spite of the fact that I normally feel really at home in nature, I was... You know, I was like this, you know, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't go off the path. I was kind of afraid that there was going to be somebody out there that was going to get me. You know, and it, it might have had something to do with the fact that all of the most poisonous snakes in the world, in fact, lived there. <laughs> um, but after being there for a while, I had another feeling, which is the welcome of the land. And I'd never felt that before. I mean, I've been happy in nature, and I felt at home in nature, but I'd never felt that the, the land or the place that I was was absolutely delighted that I was there. I mean, just delighted that I was there. And I felt that living there. And so as I began to get a feeling of that welcome, I began to relax. And as I began to relax, I began to go on explorations off of the path and get a feeling more of the bush and the creatures and, you know, how it all worked and and then and then and then exploring my own practice. So my practice at that point had been fairly focused on just Vipassana insight. You know, I would do um, I would read suttas, I would I would recite my rules, I would do things that were very familiar to me. And I kept it in a really nice structure. So I was doing bowing practice and sitting practice and chanting practice, and I would have a schedule that was very familiar and very comfortable for me. And then after I was in the, in the bush for a while, um, I was there with a Korean nun. And in Korea, they have phenomenal determination, like determination that is almost unfathomable you know, the kinds of practices that they decide to do and that they follow through with. And one of the things that they love to do is what they call tiger practice. 
So tiger practice is not lying down and not sleeping. So they make a point of not sleeping. And they do that for a week or two or three or four or five or six or two months or three months. And I don't know why, but it felt to me like this sounds like I want to try it. You know, it's the kind of insanity that sometimes I really can go for. And, you know, at that time I had been struggling with chronic fatigue syndrome and one of the the biggest stressors for me was not sleeping. So I knew that I had to do this in a really careful way because if I did it the wrong way I was likely to set myself up for a relapse and it was going to take me six months to recover. So anyway, so we were doing this weird practice and so as a result of this weird practice we were up all hours and I was in the meditation hall and outside the meditation hall was an ant's nest and so I was just watching the ants and observing them and watching what happened at night and watching what happened in the day and and the ants are incredible especially in Australia because they're everywhere I mean the, the ground is moving for ants I mean it's just there's many 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 kinds of ants and the, the ground moves because of the ants are moving so there was this ant hill, and it was close to the meditation hall, and I'd watch at night how they'd come, and they'd all, they'd, they'd, they'd make a, um, a, an ant door. So they would, they would bunch up in the hole, and so they, they, they would just leave one space open for one ant to come in and out. So they would plug up the hole with ants so that they could regulate the temperature of their hill. And I just watched the way they operated with the kind of intelligence and, you know, remarkable qualities that they had. And I never had the interest to look at ants very carefully before, and nor did I have that kind of exposure to them. But coming from the city, being born in L.A., you come up with bright ideas that somebody who lives in the bush would never think of. So this ant hill had been spilling over onto the path that he had access to the meditation hall. So I had the bright idea that I'll just gently brush the base of the ant hill very quietly, very gently, very persistently, and encourage them to move it a few feet over. So I took the broom and I started brushing the ant hill base, and probably to no surprise, the ants went on search, eat, and destroy <laughs> mission. So they came all charging at me. You know, the whole anthill. So 10,000 ants came right towards me. And so I can be thick, but I'm also not too slow. So I realized that, well, maybe <laughs> maybe this wasn't such a great idea after all. And, and maybe it really wasn't for me to decide where the ants' nest should be. And, and maybe they're... Um, distressed. So I went and put the broom on the side of the meditation hall, which was as far away as the wall. And I thought, okay, so that's, it's not good that I disturb the ants. So I'll come back and I'll give them some metta. So another person from LA thinking, you know, coming back into a charging ant hill, and I'm going to give them metta. (laughs) I walked back into this army of ants coming towards me with a different intention and not one of those ants bit me. 
not one. And then I realized what happened. This is these are ants, you know. They knew the difference between something that was not kind and something that was kind. And I was completely flabbergasted. It blew me away. So the other story that I had with ants was was, was that I was living in a little hut. So my hut was, mm, if we were to make a wall this, this wide, that's as big as my hut was. And I loved my hut. It was so wonderful. It was so glorious. It had windows on two sides, three sides, and it looked out over this spectacular, beautiful area. And all I could see were rocks and trees and the creatures that came through. I loved my hut. It was so wonderful. And then there was a Cadillac walking path in front of my hut that was like 60 feet long with the most glorious soft sand imaginable, perfectly level. It was wonderful. And I would walk back and forth on my walking path a lot. And there was another kind of ant. There was a bull ant. And this bull ant was about that big, and it had like pitchforks for prongs. And, you know, with these bull ants, if they bit you, it... You really knew about it because it swelled up to like half of a golf ball, and for one week, the pain levels were 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 way high, and for the second week, the itch levels were also way high. So everybody knew about the bull ants, and everybody stayed out of bull ants' way because even if you were five feet or six feet or eight feet tall, the bull ants would fight you. You know, they were incredibly territorial and they would fight you and it didn't matter how big you were, okay? So, it didn't take too long for me to cotton on to bull ants and to work out what the deal with them was. And they had a nest that was on the path that adjoined my walking path to the library and the kitchen and the meditation hall. So I had my path and then there was another little path and their ant's nest was just 15 feet away from my walking path off of another path. So that was their path. And I had to watch out for them when I was on their path. And that was very clear. But what was staggering to me was 15 feet away I was on my path and they would watch out for me on my path. So I walked barefoot, I walked with my eyes closed, I walked frontwards, I walked backwards, I walked morning, noon, and night. I never worried about them because they would move out of my way when they were on my path. So I thought, what's going on here? This is an ant. You know? And yet they have a sense of respect, they have a sense of boundary, they have a sense of appropriateness. And then I thought, you know, I had been used to living where respect and boundary and appropriateness and kindness was something you gave to somebody when they were worthy of it. And I thought, what would happen What would happen if I changed my priorities 
And rather than gave respect and kindness when somebody was worthy, if that was just the basis that I was coming from. And so the combination of having taken the Bodhisattva vows and the combination of what the bush was teaching me and the combination of having come to the edge of a, of a wall, seeing that trying to get out of suffering had its limitations. I thought, well, what happens if I just try and welcome and be present with what is? With kindness, with respect, with presence. And so as I started to do that, I started to notice my own practice shifting. And as my own practice was shifting, I started to notice some of these layers that were so resistant to metta that I had never seen before. And as I was allowing these things into awareness with this new uh, way of being with them, just with kindness and respect, I began to see that they started to emerge, they were known, and they started to release. And as they started to release, I started to release. And as I started to release, I began to feel that I was sitting in my own skin in a way that I had never known before. And so what was an incredible surprise to me was that at that point, after 20 years of meditation, there were layers of fear and anger and lack of self-love that I had no idea about. And yet, when I changed my orientation in practice from trying to get out to trying to move in from a place of welcome being received by the bush, being welcomed by the bush, and learning how to receive and welcome myself. That was the context where there was an enormous shift and depth and opening. And what I began to see was that the more I was able to do that, the less I was divided between inside and outside, and me and you, and this and that. And the more nature was just what was arising. It wasn't me in nature. It was just nature. In nature. Arising in nature. The more there was just nature arising in nature, the more the suffering ended. There was no differentiation between me and it, so there was no limitation to the place where the kindness and the respect would flow. In the same way that when we have our body, we take care of our fingers, we take care of our hands, because it belongs. It's all part. Well, when everything is all part, then the compassion and the care and the interest naturally flows. It's not cut up and divided. I'll give some to this and 20% to that and 5% to this and I'll have an hour and a half for that and three minutes for that. (laughs) And as I began to feel that nature, then I began to feel the support and the holding and the welcoming even more. That wasn't separate from me. I wasn't separate from it. It was mirroring to me my mind and the kindness and compassion I felt was reflected back. 
you know, one of the principal teachings in what the Buddha taught is this teaching of Paticci Samapada, which is codependent arising. And there's two ways of understanding that. One is through an analytical process of understanding the links and how they are all connected together. And the other is through empathy. And both of them come into the same understanding of the fact that we are not separate, isolated entities that exist without many different factors supporting us. It's the same realization through two different paths. So empathy and kindness and metta is not a kind of, you know, Buddhism for babies. (laughs) It's the ground. You know, without that, there's very little that we have. You know, one of the things that I love about His Holiness the Dalai Lama is him saying, my religion is kindness. You know? So here he is, you know, he's the leader of a religious order. He's the head of the state. It's like, you know, it all boils down to that. Kindness. Respect and kindness. So when I feel that, when I hear that, it makes an enormous amount of sense to me. And when I can see how these things connect with what my experience with Deepama was, which is that that actually is the fruition of the practice. It's the path and it's the fruit of the practice. It's the way that we practice and it's the result of what happens when we practice. When I was in Thailand, the, there was the tsunami, and some friends went to places where the tsunami, there was a lot of deaths and disaster, and, and they reported a story that still sends shivers up my spine. There was an area of I think Bali that had gotten hit by the tsunami and because of the where it was located there was two or three weeks before there was any kind of support or aid that came to certain parts Bali Indonesia and so a group of people went loaded with water and medicine and food and they went to a village and it was they were the first people that this village had seen so they had been without water food and medicine for two weeks or three weeks and these people were missionaries and so they saw these people who were in need and they were Hindu and quite happily Hindu They had a shrine that they were venerating, that they felt very connected to and very committed to. And the missionaries asked them to change their religion and adopt theirs. And they said, no, thank you. 
we're happy how we are and who we are. We're fine just the way we are. And the missionaries got in their truck and drove away. And when I heard that story, you know, I thought, you know, if this is what religion does to people, who needs it? I mean, honestly, if that level of blackmail, manipulation, insensitivity, cruelty is what gives rise to practice, you know, we better off without. So, I have contemplated this a lot in my own life in terms of why is it sometimes that people who are part of religious orders, their minds become narrow? And how is it that we can use practice in order to open up? Because both are possible. And so for me, it has been a priority to continue to practice and think, you know, am I doing this in a way that allows my heart to open? Or am I doing this in a way that supports me becoming more narrow-minded and judgmental and opinionated, less use to others? And so for myself, I can see the practice can be very beneficial. But I can also see that there's a way in which our attachment to it or an attachment to a group associated with it, or the longing to belong that comes with those things, can be some of the factors that give rise to the heart and mind narrowing rather than opening. So we have a sword, and it's got an edge to it. And do we use it to cut away the debris, or do we use it to harm life? You know, when I go back to Deepama and I see the example of her life, you know, the possibility of kindness in her life, the manifestation of what the ending of suffering looked like in her life, there's no confusion about what this is about. It's not becoming narrow and dogmatic and rigid and impossible and miserable and a pain in the neck to everybody. It's absolutely exquisite. You know, without judgment, without limitation. So when we pick up the practice and we're working with it, you know, when we come here on a retreat and we're dealing with the various things that we have to deal with, you know, the achingness, the achingness of our bodies, the achingness of our hearts, the pain that we have to navigate, you know, these places that are dense and hard and painful, you know, it requires a lot of patience. It requires a lot of kindness that we bring here as we begin to allow this whole thing to open up and open out and rest and relax into something that is, is, is lovely, it's peaceful, 
It's rested. But when we're up against these places that are hard, dense, tight, and so painful, it takes patience and persistence. It takes remembering. But because it feels that way, that's not the only way it's going to be. But sometimes what's needed is to contact those places and to bring qualities of kindness and care into them to allow them to open up. Like letting the prisoners out of one's heart. Sometimes the gates are rusty. Beginning to feel our bodies and let our bodies come alive. inhabit them, know them, live within them. And so I would grant that it's not easy. Sometimes it doesn't even feel fun. But what happens when we start to relax in our own skin? What happens when our body comes alive? What happens when these dark places or hard places or dry places begin to soften, open, wake up? What happens when we are able more and more to feel what is there to be felt, to receive life as it expresses itself? What is that like? What is that like as a personal experience and what is that like living around others? We're not running, we're hiding, we're covering, just standing in our own truth, standing in our own skin, understanding. So kindness, Respect, welcome, its path and its goal. It's the way we practice and it's the result of practice. It takes enormous courage, enormous courage. But I might ask, is there anything in the world that's more important? Is there anything in the world that is more important? We have to feel it here. We have to know it here. We have to live it here. And from here, we have the ability to know that there's just nature. Nature's arising. Just nature. It's just nature that's arising. So I'd like to stop here. And again, to remind everybody that when I offer a Dhamma reflection, there's no request to believe anything that I say. To listen. To listen from your own body sense of how it feels. To make use of what is useful. To let go of what is not useful. 
And if ever I'm speaking in a way that goes against your deepest understanding of what the truth is, not to let it go. To come back and talk to me about it at some point. This is a very precious opportunity. A time of retreat. Your attention is a precious jewel. And to keep this a sacred, safe, respectful arrangement requires each of us to uphold this. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.